John chapter 13, uh, we're making our way through the gospel of John. John is one of the four gospel writers, the New Testament, the Greek scriptures begin with four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've been making our way verse by verse through the gospel of John, coming now to chapter 13. Let me read verse 1, where we read. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are something like holy ground. Something like a holy of the holies in the gospel of John. And you could say that verse 1 was intended to introduce all of those chapters together. It's bringing us into a time and a place where Jesus spoke in a very close way to his disciples before he would go to the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, as we read chapter 13, verse 1, in less than 24 hours as the chronology goes from the time that these events mention, Jesus Christ will be dead upon a cross on Golgotha. And so in these last hours before his departure, he does what many of us would want to do. He's hanging out with his closest family and friends, so to speak. You know, the arrangements is made. He's done his public ministry. Now he goes, I want to spend some close time with those I love the most. And he wants to prepare them. He wants to prepare them for the coming storm, not only of the next several hours, but of the next years. And it all begins with a meal in an upper room where he's going to share these things. Now, John describes very little of the meal for us. He connects it to Passover in verse 1. But as I've often told you, you need to sort of let the Bible be like a movie in your mind. You have to really envision these things as they happened. So I need to wipe away the, the wrong vision from your mind first. The scene here at the Last Supper was not like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. You know, kind of where they did the selfie, everybody get on this side of the table, we're going to take a picture. It wasn't like that. Even though it's a beautiful painting and all, it wasn't the conception. Nor was it like some of the more modern conceptions of how it should be in modern times with with everybody on one side of the table. It's not that, not at all. No, no, they they didn't eat according to our more modern customs, but taking their cues from the culture around them at the time, they ate around a special table called a triclinium. A triclinium was a low table, something like a coffee table, maybe about this high. They would have low couches or big pillows that they would rest upon, and they would sort of rest upon their left arm, and they would take the food from the table with their right arm. Now, please, friends, they didn't do this every meal. This was for special meals, for Thanksgiving, for a special banquet, for a special commemoration. This was the setting for this particular meal. Now, I want you to notice something as you look at that picture of them around the triclinium. First of all, I want you to notice how wonderful it is to eat lying down. I mean, this is something that every man knows from football season. You know, you just get something to eat, you lie down on the couch, and you watch a game. That's the first thing. But the second thing to understand is... Since you are somewhat horizontal in your position, not completely, but your feet are kind of hanging down in back of you. 
in a few moments, we're going to see in the text that Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Please understand that he didn't have to go under a table to do it. He would just walk around the exterior and wash the feet of the disciples one by one walking around. So you've got to have this scene in your mind. And by the way, this scene is attested to us from ancient depictions on catacomb walls and such as that where you have this figure of people reclining, so to speak, as they ate. That's sort of the scene that we have in our minds when we come to verse 1. But secondly, notice the mentality. Verse 1 says that When Jesus knew that his hour had come, now was the time, going on, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Again, it's a departure. Soon he's going to go back to heaven in that sense and no longer continue his earthly ministry that he got together with the disciples. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world He loved them to the end. Two things I want you to notice. First of all, the mention that he loved his own who were in the world. Now, friends, did Jesus have a love for the multitude? Absolutely. It's reflected in that verse that we saw earlier in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world. He has a love for the multitude. You could say this, that God has done some things for all men. But friends, he has done everything for some men, those who would be called his own. Jesus has a special love for those who come to him in faith, for those who have joined themselves to him by faith. And that's the relationship that he has right now with his disciples. He's going to love them. Look at verse 1. He loved them to the end. He's ready to soon display the ultimate of love. Now, there's a lot of talk, not just in our own generation, but throughout the generations, about love. And I suppose that's a good thing. Wouldn't you rather people talk about love than hate? Wouldn't you rather people sing songs about all you need is love rather than all you need is hate? We're pro-love in this world. But here's the difficulty, and it's a huge difficulty in our modern society. Don't we have the sense that when much of the world talks about love, they don't know what they're talking about? Isn't it strange that in the modern world, so often, love is equated with sex? And when people talk about love, what they really mean is sex. Now, you don't have to be a genius, you don't have to be a sociologist, you don't have to be a scientist to have this figured out that love and sex don't necessarily go together. In a healthy marriage relationship, absolutely they should. But in the way that the world conceives and holds things, not at all necessarily. I think we need to come back constantly to our understanding what is true love, what's the ultimate of love, and let it all work down from there. And ladies and gentlemen, I have no problem telling you that the ultimate of love is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. When we preach Christ and him crucified, we preach Jesus loving to the ultimate. Jesus full of love. And the love was expressed in this extreme work of self-sacrifice and self-giving. And that's what it means. He loved them to the end. Friends, at the cross, Jesus displayed this ultimate love. Now verse 2. 
And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Okay, I I need to stop right there at the beginning of verse 2. It says, supper being ended. You need to know that there is a difference in a lot of the ancient manuscripts with that phrase. It seems, both from the manuscript evidence and from the context, that it would better be phrased, not when supper being ended, but in the midst of supper. In other words, it would really seem that Jesus did this not after they had finished eating, but in the midst of their eating. While they're passing around the figs, while they're eating the olives together, whatever it is, in the midst of the meal, what happened? Well, we look again at verses 2 and 3, and it says, first of all, that the devil was doing his work in and through Judas. But Jesus was about to do his work. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Would you just pause for a moment and think of the staggering power that is implicated in that statement? That the Father, you know who that is, God in heaven enthroned, that God the Father in heaven had given a few things into his hands. No, that's not what it says, is it? I had given a couple of big things into his hand. No, what does it say? All things. Jesus understood, I have all power, all authority, all right in the universe. I have the power of the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. I have the power to do or to not do anything I please. And friends, this was so important because Jesus understood that he was soon to go to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he did not go as a weak victim. As some man carried up in a conspiracy or in events beyond his control. He didn't go to the cross in weakness. He went to the cross in strength. He didn't go to the cross as a victim. He went to the cross as a victor. The father had put all things into his hands. Do we understand that? That any time along the way, Jesus could have said, I'm out, stop. That Jesus could have said a word. He could have thought a thought and a legion of angels would have come down to rescue him from evil men. But he didn't. With all the authority that the Father had placed into his hands, he said, I'm going to use this to sacrifice my life and to lay it down for the benefit of others. He knew all of that. He knew the authority that God the Father had placed into his hands. And then it says, verse 3, and that he had known he had come from God. He knew he was going to God. He knew everything. He was absolutely secure in his identity. Jesus did not go to the cross wondering, man, am I really God or not? I don't know. I'm tortured by all this. Who am I? None of that. None of that. No, he knew. He was absolutely confident in it. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. Probably not. You're you're too nice of people. But you've seen it done, probably, where somebody lays down the do you know who I am card. You know, you're not getting good service at a particular place or some difficult. And just, do you know who I am? Now, for some of us, there's no power in that card, is there? But, but for somebody who really is a person of authority and power, that's a pretty big card to lay down, isn't it? 
Let me tell you who I am. Friends, if anybody ever could have played the do you know who I am card, it was Jesus. You know what he did? He says, I know who I am. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to humbly serve my people. That was his whole demeanor. That was his whole heart. Now verse 4. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Do you picture that in your mind? Can you go back to the scene of the triclinium in your mind? First, he gets up from the pillows or the low couch that he's on. Then he walks over to another place in the room. And what does he do? He he grabs an apron. He sets aside his garments. By the way, the next time those garments were removed from Jesus, his outer garments, it's not talking about him becoming naked here, but his outer garments. The next time those outer garments are removed, they would be ripped from him when he went to the cross. He laid aside sort of his outer coat, his jacket, so to speak. Takes an apron, puts it around the disciples. What is he doing? What is he doing? Then he goes over to the basin of water and pours water. And they go, I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing. That's the basin that you wash feet in. By the way, don't you think that they had a special basin to wash feet in? That they wouldn't serve the salad in the same basin that they washed the feet in? He went over to the foot washing basin and he grabbed it in the sun. Oh, great. You see, we, we didn't wash our feet when we came in. And Jesus is kind of exposing this now. W- what are we going to do? With the apron wrapped around him, with a towel in his hand, with the basin, he goes over to where the disciples are and he walks outside kind of the exterior of that triclinium. And verse 5 says, he began to wash the disciples' feet. And John wrote this as if he could remember every detail. He's seeing it in his mind. He, he could have said, and he washed the disciples' feet. But it wasn't that simple for John. No, I saw it. I remember it. He got up. He took off his garments. He put the apron on. He grabbed the basin. He poured water into it. He grabbed a towel. He walked over and he began to wash our feet. I couldn't believe it. He completely gave himself to the work. This wasn't just for show. If it was just for show, I'll tell you what it would have been. Jesus would have had a servant come in with a basin of warm water. He's not going to get his arms cold and a warmed up towel, and he would have gone over and sprinkled a little water on the guy with the cleanest feet in the house, dabbed it with a towel, and said, so I have washed thy feet. Now, servant, do the rest of the guys here. But Jesus wasn't interested in this as image. He washed him. Don't you think he did a good job? There he is getting between the toes, you know, of Bartholomew right there. You know, there's Thomas. Th- Thomas, you got a little ingrown toenail here. You got to do something about this. He goes around from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. Now, friends, do you understand? Even if we don't live in that culture, it's not hard to grasp that this was the job that not only a servant did in a household, but the lowest servant. In, in those days, a household might have two, three, four servants. Who washed the feet in the household? Not. 
not the, the servant who had the most seniority. It was the lowest person in the household who washed the feet. And Jesus is just saying, I'm taking the place, not just of a slave, not just of a servant, but of the lowest servant and the lowest slave. And, and by the way, don't you think that Jesus did this with sort of a cheerfulness about him? Do you think it was heavy sighs? Oh, I'm washing feet. Oh, the suffering servant. Oh, what a chore this is. I I can't possibly conceive it being like that. Humble service in action, washing feet, loving his own people. And friends, this is the servant heart of God revealed to mankind. This is who God is. This is how he stoops down to serve us, to serve his people. We can learn a lot from how the disciples reacted. We can learn something from how Peter reacted. Look at here in verse 6. It says, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Peter answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Making his way around the disciples, he finally gets to Peter. And you know, I I think when I get to heaven, I and a lot of preachers, we're going to have to personally seek out Peter and ask his forgiveness for all the psychoanalyzing we did of Peter from the pulpit. But I can't resist. I, I picture Peter here thinking, you know, all these other 11 guys got it all wrong. They weren't supposed to allow Jesus to do this. We're supposed to stop him. I'm the only guy who gets it here. So when he gets to Peter, he goes, no, Jesus, not my feet. I'm not worthy to have my feet washed by my own rabbi, by my own master. No, Jesus. He's thinking, yeah, I'm the spiritual one. I get it here. And what does Jesus say to him? Friends, Jesus said to him something very surprising. It's even shocking. Look at it there in verse 8. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Peter, here's the base and here's the towel. I'm going to wash your feet. And if you don't let me wash you, there's the door. Now, for, first of all, do we understand that Jesus was not speaking to Peter only about feet? Does everybody understand that? Jesus understood it. Peter understood it. We understand it. That it's not like the measure of whether or not a person is connected to Jesus is whether or not Jesus ever actually washed their feet. But, But he's speaking in a very powerful picture that everybody would pick up on right away. Peter had to accept this from Jesus. And it becomes a pattern for us if we do not expect accept the humble service of Jesus to cleanse us, we have no part in him. Connecting to Jesus begins with, I'm not saying it's the entire thing, but it begins with accepting his humble service to cleanse you. That's where it begins. And if you don't do that, I'll say it, you have no part in him. No, 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 wait a minute. I go to church every Sunday. Sorry, you have no part with him. Well, but no, I, I, I do a lot of good things. Sorry, you have no part with him. 
you must receive his humble service to cleanse you. Think about it in Peter's case. Peter, through three years of ministry with Jesus, had preached the good news of the kingdom. He had healed the sick. He had cast out devils in Jesus' name. And what does Jesus say to him? I got to wash you. Peter had had amazing spiritual experiences. He saw Jesus shining in the glory of radiance there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other side. And for all those spiritual experiences, Jesus looked Peter in the eye and he said, I got to wash you or you have no part with me. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter's feet were feet that had actually walked on water. They walked on water. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. How much more, you and I? We need to come to Jesus and let him perform his humble service upon him. Now listen, I am so grateful that Jesus did not say, if you're not a Bible expert, you have no part with me. I'm so happy that Jesus did not say, if you don't have surpassing holiness, you have no part with me. No, he says, listen, it doesn't begin with you being a Bible expert. It doesn't begin with you having surpassing holiness. You want to begin your relationship with me? Here's how it begins. You let me wash your feet. You let me perform a humble service whereby I cleanse you. Friends, here's where it begins. You need to admit that you need to be washed and you need to let Jesus wash you. I'll say it again. You need to admit that you need to be washed and you, let, need, you need to let Jesus wash you. Now, it's that first point that trips up most people, isn't it? Admit that I need to be washed. What are you saying? I'm dirty? Well, you know, you're more dirty than I am. Yeah, it's probably true. But unless you let me wash you, you have no part in him. Uh, you're saying I'm worse than other people? Well, what about this person? What about that person? You know, I do a lot of good things. Yeah, you probably do. Unless you let Jesus wash you, you have no part in him. Do you see how plain and how powerful this is? So Jesus says this to Peter and all the other disciples. Now look at how Peter comes on the other side, verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Do you see Peter's reaction? Peter, on the one hand, we love Peter. He, he does nothing halfway. Everything's extreme. On the one hand, no, Jesus, you're never going to wash me. Well, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Okay, then wash all of me. Don't you think that sometimes Jesus just felt like saying, Peter, would you stop telling me what to do? Why, why don't you just accept what I want to do for you? Friends, maybe that's God's word for somebody here. Why did you just stop telling Jesus what to do? You know, sometimes we show a servant's heart by receiving service from somebody else. The refusal to receive from Jesus or from someone else is sometimes the greatest indicator of pride that a person can ever show. So he says, no, no, you got to wash 
but not all of you. You're clean. Verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Jesus taught here that there is an initial bathing that is distinct from an ongoing washing. Do you see the difference? There's an initial bathing, and then there's an ongoing washing. And friends, the initial bathing happens when we first put our trust in Jesus Christ. He forgives us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because of the guilt and the shame and the judgment that he bore in his own body that we deserved, we're clean. Our sin was put upon him, and his righteousness is put upon us. There is an initial bathing that we receive from Jesus, and thank God for it. But every day as we make our way into this world, we pick up dirt, don't we? And we need to be continually washed. I like what it says in Ephesians. Washed by the water of the word all the time. I hope that that's something that happens in your life on Sundays. I earnestly hope it. That spiritually speaking, you leave here a little, better, a little cleaner than you came here. But because God has done some kind of washing work just from the presence and the focus upon his word in our midst. Because I need and you need our feet washed by Jesus all the time. Now verse 12. So when he had washed his feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Let me first point out in verse 13. That Jesus says to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and well you say, for so I am. And friends, this is exactly how it should be with our relationship with Jesus. We should regard him as our teacher, and we should regard him as our Lord. Teacher means I take my instructions from Jesus. Lord means he is my master. And more than ever in the culture around us, God is looking for men and women who will stand up and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord and nothing else is Lord of my life. I think about this in the context of the early church. Friends, the early Christians, when they were persecuted by the Roman government, it would work something like this. Oftentimes, they would have a place you would go in the town, and there would be a statue or maybe just a bust ahead of Caesar. And there'd be a little fire underneath it with coals on it, and there'd be a table and some Roman administrator and a few soldiers around there, and everybody in the town had to go up to the statue of Caesar, take a pinch of incense, and burn it. And as they burnt that incense before the statue, they'd have to say, Caesar is Lord. And then walk your way. Now, the Romans didn't care if you believed it. What do they care? Believe it or not believe it, they don't care. It's a ritual. You have to do it. It's a patriotic ritual to the Roman mind. To the Christians, they said, no way. I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And the culture isn't going to be my Lord. And the government isn't going to be my Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord and nothing else. And friends, there are many Christians who were sent to the lions because of that. There are many Christians who were burned to death 
who were imprisoned, who suffered great suffering and deprivation because they were determined to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and nothing else. And maybe it's true. It sure seems like it. Maybe it's true that the culture around us is becoming more and more hostile. If it is true, how God needs to raise up men and women, I would hope the people in this room who would say, Jesus is Lord and nothing's going to take that away from me and I'll suffer for that. That was the spirit of the early church. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you say that I'm Lord and teacher over you. So what should you do? Verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, as I picture this whole foot washing thing in my mind, I picture Jesus washing all their feet, finishing with Peter. He goes back down and then he stands in front of the disciples. and goes, hey guys, you call me teacher and Lord? Well, then who's going to wash my feet? Go ahead, there's 10 of you. Each one can have a toe and then a couple ankles as well. I, I don't know. Jesus did not ask them to wash his feet in return. He said, no, if you really want to carry out what I'm doing, wash one another's feet. Now, some churches institute this. They institute foot washing ceremonies. You ever been to a foot washing service? It's very sweet. It can be very moving, very tender. And there's nothing wrong with it. I'll say it again. Nothing wrong with the foot washing service, and it can be very wonderful. I'm just saying it doesn't really fulfill what Jesus spoke about here. Because what Jesus spoke about here is a simple giving of the life. It's a simple laying down of service. It's a sacrifice. It's saying, I'm going to humbly serve my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I'm going to humbly serve others in Jesus' name. And I'm going to honor Jesus by the way I do it. Friends, I, I just flat out ask you, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you humbly serving your brothers and sisters in Jesus' name? Or do you just think, well, I'm tight with Jesus, but other people, yeah, whatever. This is the picture that sometimes comes to my mind and is a little bit frightening to me. I I mean, maybe it's not even true, but it's just a picture that sometimes comes to my mind. I picture somebody in rapturous worship of Jesus. Oh, there they are, man. They're just hands raised, eyes closed. I mean, just with all their passion. I love you, Jesus. I'm singing to you. It's so wonderful. And then right next to them is a person in great need. A person that's so needy and just needs some help. And they're totally ignoring the person right next to them. And Jesus said, you know, I'm grateful that you pour out all this love to me. That's fine. But you really want to love me? Love one another. Wash others' feet. We we can do it in the midst of our own church family. We can do it in our community. You know, this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about the relationship we're building with Franklin School just a couple miles from here. Do you realize what an amazing opportunity God gives us to do humble service in Jesus' name there at that school? I mean, it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for us. There's ways that we can do it all around us. He says, verse 14, wash one another's feet. Let's wrap up here, starting at verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
you could say that the entire life and work of Jesus was an example. But isn't it interesting that it is very few the times that he actually says that. This, hey, everybody, this is an example. Follow it. Here's one of the times. I want you to go out and not just think about doing acts of humble service. I want you to do them for one another. And that's why I love what he says in verse 15. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Look, friends, let's face it. The theory of humble acts of service is much easier than actually doing them. I can give quite a lecture on the theory of humble acts of service. It's another thing entirely to do it. But Jesus didn't say, happy are you if you think about these things. He said, happy are you if you do them. I'll just read it again. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So let let me just wrap up with this. How to be happy. Two things, how to be happy. Number one, let Jesus wash you. Let him wash you. Some of you just have to give up trying to tell Jesus how clean you are and just say, wash me. Wash me. Well, Jesus, let me wash my feet first. Then you can wash them. No, just come to him now. Let him wash you. That's number one. But then number two, friends, it's really simple. Live with the attitude and the actions of a humble servant. And I think both of them are, I think the attitude is important and I think the actions are important. I think they go together. I think that the actions without the attitude aren't really complete and certainly the attitude without the action is not complete. God wants you to have the attitude and the action of a humble servant and you will be happy in Jesus. You will. Now, Maybe you're thinking right now about a checklist of humble service things that you could do. And that's great. That's wonderful. Well, you know, I, I could help in the children's ministry. I could help out with what they're doing in Franklin School. I can go to the rescue mission. There's a food bank in town, on and on. There's all sorts of different things. I can humbly serve in Jesus. And that's wonderful. There's lots of new things that you could do. But for a moment, I just want you to think how you could do the exact same things that you do during the week, but incorporate into them the attitude and the actions of a humble servant. So what's on your calendar for tomorrow? You got work, you got meetings, you got this, you got that. You look at it and say, how do I approach everything on my agenda tomorrow with the attitude and the action of a humble servant in Jesus' name? That's his example to you. Happy are you if you do it. Father in heaven, that's my prayer. Lord, I so long that we go uh, beyond being hearers of your word and that we know the joy and the goodness of the grace of being doers of the word. And Lord, I'll admit that this is a little difficult because there is a different application of this truth in every individual life. But Lord, I want to ask, I want to plead with you by the presence, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you prevail upon us and speak to those things. Do it among us, Lord, here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.